because we don't have the time to teach the revelation line upon line, we, I've had to approach this differently. And so I've kind of done more of a topical outline or topical studies for the book of Revelation. So you are familiarized with the topics and the subjects. We can't cover every verse because there's just too many. We only have 12 weeks to cover this, these lessons. But if we can hit the major topics that when you do go and read it, you know what's going on and then you can fill in the gaps in between. So this is lesson five of the Revelation. We call this the major characters of Revelation. We're not able to do a, a singular lesson on every major character, though some of them we do. But this way you have just a good, a, a good acquaintance, a good understanding. And there's obviously a lot more information out there than we can give you in 12 weeks. But this at least brings you up to speed pretty quickly. So let's get into this. Before studying the Revelation... It would be beneficial to have a brief introduction to each of the major characters covered in, in John's vision. This will help us to understand their place and purpose in prophecy. All right? So we're going to run through these. Some of them we'll spend more time on than others. And some of them we actually have future lessons that are coming that we'll spend a whole 45 minutes discussing. So our first major character is Jesus Christ. How can you not bring him up first and foremost? For by him are all things, and all things are made by him, and without him there's not anything made that was made. So we have to give him the preeminence. Uh, this is, of course, the Son of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ is the Son of God, we'll give an altar call here in a minute, and we can introduce you. The book of Revelation is technically his revelation. This book is a record of what he, Jesus Christ, revealed to John. So the revelation, most Bibles call it the revelation of St. John the Divine, but technically Jesus Christ did the revealing. We know, we understand, it's just semantics, but it's what Jesus Christ chose to reveal to John. And he said, I, I reveal this so you can share it with my servants so they can know what's going on. He is referred to as the Lamb 27 times in the Revelation. So we, all, we know he's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, but that's how he's addressed 27 times as the Lamb. Our second character is John. Obviously, he's the one who received the revelation. We understand it was probably Prochorus, one of the first uh, disciples or deacons there in the book of Acts. Prochorus is probably who penned the revelation because church history tells us that John the, uh, the beloved, St. John the Divine, was probably blind at the age of 98 when he was on the island of Patmos. This is John the beloved, John the revelator, the last of the original 12 disciples and apostles. All the others were dead by this time. He was the only one remaining. He lived in Ephesus at the time. John is the only one of the 12 apostles of the Lamb to die naturally at about 100 years of age. All the other apostles of the Lamb were martyred, except for Judas, but no one cons considers Judas an apostle of the Lamb. He was replaced by Matthias there in Acts chapter 1. Judas hanged himself, his rope broke, his guts burst open. He must have been on a high cliff to fall you got to fall a long way for your guts to burst open. So maybe it was a high tree or a high cliff. We don't know. He was replaced by Matthias through the drawing of straws in Acts chapter 1. Why did they draw straws? They didn't have the Holy Ghost yet. When you don't have the Holy Ghost, you're asking for weird signs and wonders like, Lord, if you'll make this fleece wet, Lord, open the door, Lord, close the door. That's how Christians pray when they don't have the Holy Spirit in their life. When you have the Holy Spirit, you pray and ask the Lord for inward peace. And if the Lord says, walk over there, Lord, there's a door in my way. Walk over there. And it opens before you, or he'll say, now command the door to open. But when you don't have the Holy Spirit working in your life, you draw straws. That's the last time you see that Old Testament thing take place in the Bible. Amen. 
John wrote his three epistles and the Revelation after his release from Patmos. He wrote his gospel, the gospel of John, before he went to Patmos, his three epistles and the Revelation after Patmos. And it is historically held that Prochorus aided John during his 18 months of or on Patmos. All right. Our third uh, category here, our third list of characters are the angels. Never in the entire Bible do you see angels more at work than you do in the Revelation. This is the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. And uh, they're mentioned over 55 times in the Revelation. That is a lot of references to angels. We try not to get too spooky. There are some Christians that see angels every day. I don't believe them. You can live and die and never see an angel, and you're still perfectly mature in Christ. But we see a lot of goings-on in the Revelation with angels, and it lets us know how much really still goes on behind the scenes. We live in a natural realm. We operate in a natural realm, but there's a supernatural realm behind the scenes. It just lets us know there's more than meets the eye, more going on than we can see, and that's all right. We walk by faith, not by what we can see. There are five different types of angels in the Revelation. Some would maybe dispute only four. The first one, and there's some debate among the theologians and scholars on this. I happen to believe it. You don't have to believe it. Let me add this. As I write these lessons and as we get further along in these lessons, my confidence and my dogmatism is going to wane. Everything I could preach with 100% surety we cover in the first couple lessons. And then the further into the future the lessons get and the things that haven't come to pass, we have to say, this is what most people believe. This, this is kind of what we see coming because it hasn't happened yet. And we see through a glass darkly. And as one theologian put it, Jesus Christ even said to his disciples, these things I have told you now so that when they happen, you will believe me. He told them knowing they wouldn't understand it, they wouldn't get it, and they wouldn't believe it. But after the fact, they'd say, I remember when he said that. It makes total sense now. Because some might say, well, why would he tell us if we couldn't fully understand it? That's what he does. He proved that. So the, more we, the further we go along, I want to say our confidence or our surety will lessen. But the thing is, even if we're not 100% accurate in our interpretation, we're 100% accurate in our heart for God that we know these things are going to come to pass, whether it's exactly as we say so or fudge a little. That's just the nature of Bible prophecy, all right? One of our lessons on eschatology from a previous curriculum, it says that Bible prophecy is a lot like the wake of a ship. It's a lot easier to see where you've come from than exactly where you're going because you can always look back and see how everything lined up with Bible prophecy. But if you look ahead into the future events and you see Bible prophecy, you're not sure exactly how all those dots are going to line up. You know the dots are out there. You know they're going to come to pass. You're just not sure exactly what pattern you're going to hit them in. All right. So number one, so I say quite possibly the first order of angel, singular, is Jesus Christ. And it is him being described as an angel in Revelation chapter 10 through 11.3. This angel is very likely the Lord Jesus because of the following description. And we know in the Old Testament, the Lord appeared several times as an angel, and it was always very clear. He would say, worship me or take off your shoes. This is holy ground. The angel in the burning bush was the Lord Jesus. The angel appearing to Joshua was the Lord Jesus. The angel in the fire, of the fiery furnace, was the Lord Jesus. We understand that. And that's why many of the experts believe this is the Lord Jesus, because it's not unlike him to be described as an angel. A messenger, because we know Jesus Christ is the, he is the word. He is the message. 
Why do we think, why do some think that the angel of Revelation 10 is the Lord Jesus? Well, because number one, he's clothed with the cloud, and there are over 100 Bible references to God in clouds. All right, we got a pretty good precedent there. Number two, his, he has a rainbow upon his head, which is exactly how God's described in Ezekiel and in Revelation chapter 4. There's a rainbow about him. Number three, his face, this angel's face is as the sun. So is the Lord Jesus's. Number four, his feet are as pillars of fire. So are the Lord Jesus's. He roars like a lion. Well, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Number five, he swears by God that there shall be no more delay. God swears by himself or takes an oath by himself in Amos and in Hebrews. Actually, he commands, don't swear by his name anymore, but if he wants to, he can. But Hebrews says because he could swear by no other greater, he swore by himself. And then the final one, this is the one probably perhaps the most revealing. He calls the two witnesses, my two witnesses. I don't think angels take possession of the two witnesses, but this angel says, for I shall send my two witnesses. The same two witnesses that were on the Mount of Transfiguration, probably the same two angels or witnesses that were there when the Lord was caught up in the cloud in Acts chapter 1. So for that reason, we, we say probably this angel is the Lord Jesus. And if you don't want to agree with that, that's fine. It's just, if not, he's a very, very much looking like Jesus, a kind of angel, and that's all right. Number two, we have pastors. The second category of angels in the Revelation are the pastors. These are messengers to the seven churches, Revelation 2 and 3. And again, some folks don't want to agree with that. They want to think that these angels are literal angels. But then again, the Lord Jesus is rebuking these angels. And he tells the angels, I have something against you. Well, if the Lord Jesus has something against the angelic angels, I think they're being cast down. But if it, now if it's the messenger who stands in the pulpit and leads the local flock, I can understand how the Lord would say, I have something against you. In fact, the Revelation, uh, the Church of the Apocalypse in Revelation chapter 2, he says in the Greek, he says, he says, I have somewhat against you, angel, because you permit your wife, that Jezebel, to teach my servants. So angels have wives? Or is it the pastor of the church who permitted his Jezebel wife to steal the church? Well, that still goes on today. Amen. So we've got the, the pastors of the seven churches, the apocalypse, beginning with the Ephesian church, ending with the Laodicean church. Number three, we have redeemed men used by God in Revelation. There are actually some men in the Revelation that are called angels, but by the way they're described are actually redeemed men because they're angels too. They're messengers, which was very eye-opening to me. I'd never even heard that taught before until I start studying 17, 18 authors who are eschatological experts who've been studying this for hundreds of years combined. John's guide through heaven. John has an angel that guides him through this vision of heaven. We come to find out in the end, he's actually a man, but he's referred to as an angel numerous times. Look at the verse there. John 22, 8 and 9, he says, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel which showed me these things. Then said he unto me, See thou do it not, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of them which keep the sayings of this book. Worship God. This angel, how can he be of the brethren the prophets unless he's a man? How can he be a fellow servant with John if he's an angel? Amen. So that's very revealing there. We also look at point B, possibly the harvest angel in Revelation 14, 14. He is, the Lord said, I'll send my angels to bring in the harvest. But this angel is crowned with a golden crown, and angels have never been described as possessing crowns, but men are. 
They're given golden crowns as crowns of reward. And then uh, see Revelation 21, 17, which says, it is the measure of a man that is of the angel, the angel that had led him through the revelation. Because if you've ever seen angels through the gift of the Spirit called discerning of spirits, angels are often much, much bigger than men are. You know, seven, eight, nine, ten feet tall, they're big. Anyway, so our fourth classification are fallen angels. And these are bound for the appointed time of judgment. You have the demon locust horde of Revelation chapter 9. You can study that there. Then you have the angel and king that's over them, Abaddon or Apollyon. And he is the angel and the king of the bottomless pit. That's a demon. That's a fallen angel. You have the four angels bound in the Euphrates River. The fact that they're bound lets us know they are not angelic or heavenly angels because you don't bind those guys. These guys have been bound in that river. Apparently they did something and the Lord saw fit to bind them and hold them in a river. There's a lot of stuff that goes on we know nothing about. The Bible talks about, well, there's a lot of relation of water and demons. Demons don't like water. These are bound in water. Demons, uh, when you baptize people in the bush in the third world, Demons come out of people. They hate baptism. So there's stuff we can't fully explain. There's stuff we maybe don't make major doctrines out of because the Bible is somewhat silent on them, but there's just unique things to see. We get all caught up with the natural realm, forgetting that the natural realm is very temporary and the spirit realm is eternal and more real. That's why we endeavor to be spiritual as Christians because if all we do is walk by sight, we have very little faith. But these four demons are bound for an appointed time, and when they're unleashed, they, they produce a 200 million demon army to destroy a third of mankind. Now, uh, and we'll get into that later, but some of these demon hordes that are released, in the last 30 years, people have tried to describe that as natural armies. And I've heard that demon horde described as the Apache helicopter. That's a little silly, because that totally negates the other descriptions of it. But anyway, people are trying to grasp at what it could be. Then, of course, you have point D, Satan and his angels. So there's your fourth type or classification of angels in the Revelation. And then fifthly, you have the angelic heavenly hosts, God's servants who are ministering spirits to those who are heirs of salvation. These heavenly beings carry out the orders of God directly from the throne, of which there are over 20 recorded in the book of Revelation. And I'll just read through these quickly. The strong angel at the throne, the myriad of angels at the throne, the four angels holding the four winds, and that's an interesting study because the Lord redeems his elect from the four winds, which to me seems to imply through all the languages that the four winds are a spiritual force that holds back God's people because they must be redeemed from, and four angels hold back the four winds. Again, a lot of stuff going on there that... And we're just trying to get Christians to come to church three times a week. Maybe they're being held back by one of the four winds. One of them's called laziness, one of them's called gluttony, one of them's called selfishness, one of them's called comfort. I think I have a new sermon. The four winds of the apocalypse coming soon to a home near you. D, the angel with the seal of God, uh, the worshiping angels at the throne, the seven angels with the seven trumpets, the angel with the golden censer, the woe, woe, woe angel, Michael and his angels, the gospel angel, Babylon is fallen angel, the mark of the beast warning angel, the harvesting angel, the angel giving the order to harvest or the harvest ordering angel, the vintage angel, and the angel ordering the harvest of the vintage. And this is the angel that has power over fire. Some angels have power over fire. Again, there's so much into the spirit realm, but we don't want to get spooky. 
Seven angels of the seven last plagues. The Babylon the great is fallen angel. The angel casting the great stone. The angel standing in the sun. And the angel with the key to the bottomless pit. A lot of different angels and they have assignments from God. So the angels play a very critical role in the revelation. And we just need to, we're, all we're doing this morning is familiarizing ourselves with these characters. So that when we read about them, we're at least acquainted with who they are, what they're doing, why they're there. 24 elders. Now, we meet these folks very early in the Revelation, chapter 4 and 5, and then we see them throughout. These men are only seen sitting in 24 thrones around the throne of God. So these are men who have been given a throne of authority around the throne of God. The exact identity of the 24 elders is unknown. Nobody can claim with confidence and surety exactly who they are. Their, their identity is not given. Their names are not revealed. The exact nature of their heavenly authority is not known. We don't know what they can and can't do because it's not revealed to us. It is clear that they are men redeemed from the earth by the atoning work of Jesus Christ, for they are seen dressed in white raiment and crowned with golden crowns. These are always, the white raiment and the golden crowns are always indicative that these are men that have served God, been redeemed by God, and now have rewards. When we get to heaven, we'll have white raiment and we'll be given crowns. The New Testament tells us as much. And they proclaim this to the Lord. Thou hast redeemed us to God by your blood. Well, to be redeemed, you have to be mortal and you have to have served God and received him. And thou hast made us unto our God, kings and priests, we shall reign on the earth. That lets us know, by the, by the fact that John goes to heaven and they're already there, lets us know that they were forerunners before John. They're already sitting there. These, uh, they are redeemed men already in heaven. Therefore, it is likely that these 24 elders are representatives of the Old and New Testament saints. All right, it's likely. We're not saying of 100% surety, but it is likely. I.e., 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles of the Lamb, though it's not said that these are the 12 apostles of the Lamb because John is an apostle of the Lamb and he's not sitting on a throne yet at the time of the writing. Furthermore, the combined 12 tribes and 12 apostles are also linked to the New Jerusalem, and so we see that pattern there. 24 representatives of the New Testament, 24 representatives of the Old Testament on the, on the New Jerusalem, on the foundation of the New Jerusalem, and we see something similar here. These 24 elders are seen worshiping God throughout the Revelation. That's what they're seeing doing. Again, they're there. We don't have much revelation or much uh, revealed to us, so we can't build a massive doctrine. One of the keys to having sound doctrine is you emphasize what the Bible emphasizes and you minimize what the Bible minimizes. Or another way of saying it is be loud where the Bible's loud and be quiet where the Bible's quiet. Where folks get really goofy and ruin their lives and even their churches is when they try to be loud when the Bible offers very little and they're very quiet when the Bible screams. One of the greatest probably prophets or evangelists of the last hundred years ruined his ministry by changing the direction of his ministry to emphasize the seven thunders of the revelation. You will never know what the seven thunders of the revelation are because God told John, seal it up and don't say anything about it. If John is the only one to know and he was commanded to seal it up, how will you ever know what it is till you get to heaven? But this man, actually, he died prematurely because he got so way off and weird, convinced by a demon, he knew what the seven thunders of the revelation were. And he was quiet on salvation, and he was quiet on redemption, and he was quiet on repentance, and quiet on church attendance, and quiet on world evangelism. There's too much in the Bible to emphasize to start majoring on these little minor things in there. 
Amen. I find that goofy Christians often want to make a big ministry out of one verse. And that's like building your foundation of a skyscraper on a needle. You ought to build your foundation on something that you've got 300 verses to build upon. Be loud on that. But everybody wants to split hairs and fight and pick and leave a church over something that there's two verses on in the whole Bible. Anyway, so that's just kind of helping you with doctrine. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. If you don't have two or three, leave it alone. If all you got is two or three, tread lightly. Amen. All right. Four creatures. Here again, we tread lightly. And we just show you what the word says. We can't be dogmatic about it. These appear to be the same. These appear. They appear to be. If we get to heaven, am I wrong? Don't hunt me down and tell me I was wrong, all right? These appear. They've never appeared to me, and I've never appeared before them, but from the word, these appear to be the same four creatures seen in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, who are also called seraphim, coming from the Hebrew word seraph to burn because they're copper colored. See also Ezekiel 1. And they have six wings. Isaiah's seraphims were seen above the throne of God, crying, holy, holy, holy. With two, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they did fly, crying, holy, holy, holy. Ezekiel's had creatures, but his only had four wings. And they were observed under the throne of God, carrying the throne of God. And they only had four wings. All right, so why the discrepancy? I don't know. Maybe it's a different category of angel. Maybe their other two wings hadn't come in yet. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Ezekiel couldn't see the other two wings. He only saw four wings, though. But these were under the throne. And then John's creatures were seen in the midst of the throne. So notice you have these angels. Some are underneath, some are in the midst, and some fly above. It paints the picture that there's a unique category. We, we almost don't even want to call these angels because they're not seen doing anything like the other angels are doing. And these have wings. The other angels are never described as having wings. Only the ones around the throne have wings. And that gets into a little bit deeper study on angelology, but we don't have time to cover that this morning. John's creatures were seen in the midst of the throne also having six wings. They are mostly seen worshiping the Lord at the throne. They are, they are seen in both Isaiah and Revelation saying, holy, holy, holy. And one of these four creatures delivers the seven vials of wrath unto the seven angels of wrath. And so he comes from the throne with those seven vials. So just something there to see. These are called creatures because John had no better word to describe somebody with four faces on one head. And feet like a calf. And hands like a human. And four wings. I mean, how else do you describe it? There is this thing. Wings I recognize, cow feet I recognize, human hands I recognize, but four faces on one head and one face was like a lion and one face and it was a creature because it wasn't like the angels. So that's why they're called the four creatures. Just, there's, I'm telling you, there's stuff out there. We believe it because it's the Bible. We get to heaven and we'll say, I'm totally with you, John. I don't know how else to describe it either. <laughs> creatures. And I'm sure one of those heads will whip around and say, who are you calling Creature. You think I look weird. You only have one face. What's wrong with you? Where are your wings? What's wrong with your feet? Those are weird-looking feet. Amen. It's all perspective. <laughs> the crystal sea mingled with fire. You have two references there. Uh, Revelation 4, verse 6, and 15, verse 2. One, one uh, expositor said this is... Pro they, they wanted to say this was like the sea 
or the washing bowl that was before the Ark of the Covenant, before the temple in the Old Testament. Others disagree with that because this is before the throne of God, whereas the thing called the sea that was part of Solomon's temple and Moses' tabernacle sat outside the Holy of Holies and outside the holy place. It was not exactly directly before. Most folks agree, most expositors and eschatologists agree this is the sea of humanity because a sea can also refer to humanity, the sea of people. That is a very common interpretation of that. That makes more sense because you're talking about the sea of redeemed mankind before the throne of God. So that's my interpretation. That's how I present it. The sea of redeemed humanity before the throne of God. And in Revelation 15, 2, the crystal sea is mingled with fire probably indicative of the new addition of tribulation saints that have been added to the sea of redeemed humanity, but these have come out of hell, as in hell on earth, the, tr- the great tribulation, or through the fire of tribulation. That's a, that makes pretty good sense. A lot of Bible prophecy, we use what is just called the simplest explanation is often the most accurate. If you have to get really spooky and ethereal, if it doesn't make pretty good sense, you're digging a little too deep. God is not trying to be super mysterious here, but he does use typology to get us to dig a little deeper so we can be revealed to by the Spirit of God. So the crystal sea, then the sea mingled with fire. Then you have the 144,000 witnesses. Now, this is very famous. Now, unlike the pseudo-Christian cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Seventh-day Adventists, and both of them are cultish, the Seventh-day Adventists still follow the teachings of a a 19th century prophetess. And they loosely believe that the 144,000 are modern-day Christians of, of their flavor. But the problem with that is it says specifically there are 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. White people aren't Israel. Their white prophetess was not an Israelite or a Jew of any flavor. Of course, Jehovah's Witnesses believe only 144,000 are going to heaven, and they're them. So whenever I witness to them, I like to say, well, I'm going. I guess I'm one of the 144,000, and you're not. But these are kind of pseudo-Christian cults. We call pseudo-Christian because they use the Bible cult because they're not accurate, and they're really weird. This group of men are called the servants of our God. They're not called the church. They're not called the body of Christ because the church is gone. The body of Christ is gone. But these are still saints and servants. They are made up of 12,000 men from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They are believed to be equivalent to 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Can you imagine that? Burning the candle at both ends because they've only got three and a half years to operate. If you only had three and a half years to do the will of God, what would you be doing this morning? What would you be doing after service this morning? These guys run nonstop. Evangelizing and preaching the gospel throughout the whole world during the tribulation. The fruit of their ministry will be the greatest revival in human history. Almost all the guys, uh, the gentlemen I've studied, believe the greatest revival will come after we're gone. We can see the world is hardening. And there are nations that are still very open to the gospel, but nations that are first world like ours, nations that are first world like Europe, they're very hardened to the gospel. Now, there's revival that stirs from time to time, but we're not talking about a great worldwide revival like we used to long for in the 80s and 90s. What we're seeing is a hardening, and we're seeing, as the Bible teaches in other places, a remnant shall be saved. But most of these folks, especially uh, Reverend Tim LaHaye, he really believes with all of his heart, and I agree with him, it's my personal agreement, that the greatest revival mankind's looking for will happen when the church is gone, 
And all of a sudden, the Bible is, con is confirmed to all those that say, Lord, God, give me a sign. If you're real, give me a sign. Plus, it'll also reveal how many Christians really weren't saved in local churches. And all of a sudden, pastor's gone, or maybe he's not. You wouldn't believe how many preachers aren't even truly saved. And half the church is empty. Most folks believe half the church is actually what's saved. And so folks come to and have a Sunday morning service and they realize everything we heard, we didn't really believe as accurately as we thought. And now revival breaks out, 144,000 doing the word of God, bringing in that great company that John saw, the Crystal Sea, uh, that no man could number that came out of the tribulation. This great, uh, the fruit of their ministry will be the greatest revival in human history. This great revival will take place in the first half of the tribulation. And more will be said about this in, in the, not lesson five, I guess lesson six, on the four orders of Christianity, or the, excuse me, the four orders of saints. All right. So again, we don't have time much to sit and, and hover. We've got to move quickly. Tribulation saints. These tribulation saints are first described by one of the 24 elders in chapter seven. The tribulation saints, the elders recognize and see it. These are described as an innumerable company of men, women, and children from all nations who convert to Christianity after the church is raptured. The 144,000 servants, the witnesses, they go out throughout the whole world. This is as opposed to the two witnesses who stayed strictly in Jerusalem. That's where they're killed. That's where they testify. Generally speaking, these tribulation saints are the converts of the 144,000 witnesses. They reject the Antichrist, and they accept the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. These uh, include those martyred during the tribulation, and more will be said on that in the next lesson as well. Concerning the martyrs, not every saint during the tribulation will be martyred, but a great many of them will be. Many of them will be beheaded. And since this is the only unique manner of death described in the Revelation, it leads us to believe that this will be the most common manner of martyrdom during the tribulation. It's quick. It's cheap. You don't have to pull a bullet. You don't have to electrocute. It doesn't cost you any power. It's green. And we know how this generation loves to hug Mother Earth. Hey, we're killing two birds with one stone, a Christian, and we're saving the earth. So that's why most folks believe in the beheading. Guillotines, very cheap and efficient. Thank you, the French. Swords, Muslims prefer swords. They're actually knives and machetes. But we understand that there'll, there'll be a lot of beheading. From under the heavenly altar, the martyred saints demand vengeance for their death, and God will avenge them. Remember, he said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's getting his vengeance in, in the tribulation. Also, Jesus Christ said in Luke's gospel, he said, for some of you shall be delivered up unto death. That's how we know not all of you. Because Jesus said, for some of you shall be delivered up unto death. We, not, every, not every saint will be martyred, but a great many will. And we base that on the word of Jesus Christ himself. The two witnesses, moving very quickly here. Again, I, I think we have more than enough scripture that you can go and cross-reference and take a look at. These two men are prophets and begin their work in the last half of the tribulation. The Bible declares they are prophets. They are given the Old Testament signs and wonders of Moses and Elijah to use at will. They can turn that thing on and off. That's what the Bible says. They are given an assignment or a testimony that will take three and one half years to complete. Then the beast from the abyss will kill them in Jerusalem. That beast refers to the Antichrist. He, that demon comes out of the abyss, possesses the man who is called the Antichrist or that great dictator, the beast. 
he'll kill them. We know that they operate in the last half of the tribulation because they oppose the Antichrist and they hinder him. And he gets put out with them and finally kills them. And then they are resurrected. That is, their, their resurrection and rapture is the last rapture of mankind. There's seven raptures of the Bible beginning with Enoch, ending with these two. Church is there in the middle. Jesus Christ was the third one. Elijah was the second one. Tribulation saints and, and so on. At this time, Jerusalem is called a spiritual Sodom and Egypt. That's how wicked it is. This describes how wicked and depraved it will be during the Antichrist's rule. At this time, he will have committed the abomination desolation, set himself up as God in the Holy of Holies, which he had permitted temple worship the first three and a half years. But halfway through it, he goes in there and defiles everything. Their bodies will lie dead in the streets for three and one half days, then be resurrected and raptured by the Spirit of God. All right, moving along pretty good. Oh, yeah. You following all this? It's a lot. It feels like you guys are doing pretty good. I don't feel anybody's head swimming. I don't perceive any confusion. It's a lot of information. I've, I've had to digest it over the last five months, but we're doing a pretty good job staying on top of it. Trying to just give you kind of a simplified version. Again, please realize men have made 50-year ministries out of studying these subjects and, and researching it. And honestly, the, the, the older the theologian you'll study, the deeper you'll be able to get. Unfortunately, modern ministers and modern theologians don't go deep. I, I, I hate to say that, but we just don't make time for it. Our lives are too busy with stuff. There was something awesome 100 years ago where you could just sit and study the Bible for 15 hours and, and work out theology and doctrine. The newer the books I study on this subject, the less scripture they contain. The older the books I study on this subject, they'll reference a third of the Bible. They'll pull out scriptures I had never seen. I didn't even know it was in the Bible, and I've read the Bible. But they said this is, and you can see it, but they have time to study. You and I as Christians, we have to make time for the Bible. Let us not be more shallow the further we go on in time. Let us stay deep in God's, deep in prayer, deep in Bible study. That's the only strength we've got. Amen. The dragon. Anybody know who the dragon is? Satan. This one's an easy one. Midway through the tribulation, he will be cast down to the earth, limiting his dominion. Until that time, he, he roams the heavenlies. He is the prince of the power of the air. But halfway through, there is a war in heavens. And I don't have time to go into a lot of that. But Michael and his angels cast the Lucifer down. And he is no longer free to roam the earth. And it says, and now he knows his time is short, exactly three and a half years. And that's when it really gets bad. And of course, the Lord ramps up his wrath as well. He will no longer be the prince of the power of the air. Uh, well, there's more to cover on that. Then we have the great whore. This one we've got to spend a little bit of time on, and I'm down to about seven minutes. This is a system. There's two Babylons in the Revelation. One is called the great whore, mystery Babylon. One is called the city of Babylon, and they are two distinct things. The great whore is a system of false religion, a one-world religion that denies the gospel of Jesus Christ. It began at Babylon with the first spiritual rebellion against God led by Nimrod. After Nimrod's death, his widow, Semiramis, claimed to give birth to a miraculously conceived son, Tamuz. Tamuz was killed by an animal but raised from the dead three days later. Does that sound familiar? This cult eventually spread throughout the world, through the names though the names changed from culture to culture. This cult was still being worshipped in Jerusalem in Ezekiel's day, about 3,000 years after it was developed. This cult is still around today, 
though the names change. The spirit of this thing is still here. So in Assyria, it was known as Ishtar and Tamaz. In Egypt, it was Isis and Osiris. In Phoenicia, it was Ashtaroth and Baal. You've heard of those terms. Israel was constantly doing that thing. Greece, it was Epaphrodite and Eros, where we get erotic love. And Rome, it was Venus and Cupid. There goes your Valentine's Day. In this regard, Babylon became the mother of harlotries for all subsequent cultures. She has this, this demon spirit has perverted culture and religion for, since Nimrod, since right after the ark, Noah's ark. God frustrated this original Babylonian apostasy by confounding the languages and disrupting the first one world government. In the doctrine of um, dispensationalism, this is called the time of human government. Nimrod had a one world government. And God said, this ain't going to fly. He confounded the languages and everybody was separated. Later, he commanded that humanity be ordered by national boundaries and ruled locally. That's why this whole no border thing, that's why this whole, uh, what do you call it when you, the immigration thing, a porous border, this is not God. And any, any politician who supports amnesty and a porous border violates God's word. Paul said, preaching at, a, at a Mars Hill, he said, for the Lord has set all nations in their borders as it has pleased him. When you want to have a porous border and show you know, this kind of perverse mercy on the immigrant, you're violating God's word. They're called illegal for a reason. We're all for immigration, just do it legally. There's not a country I travel to I can do what illegals do in this nation. I will be arrested and never seen again or deported. Only America is this stupid. All right. <laughs> Only the politicians that we elect are this stupid. And they are a reflection of us. All right, let's see here. Where was I at? Of course, the devil wants to do just the opposite. Throughout time, she has affected all nations and all the world's leaders have committed idolatry, also called spiritual fornication and adultery with her. The whore rides upon the beast system. The beast, the Antichrist rising, gives place to her revival again. And as we see that there in Revelation, she rides, this whore rides upon the beast. Her full name is given as Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abomination and abominations of the earth. Spirits and sorcerers, or I should say spiritists, and sorcerers have controlled every world empire from behind the scenes, from ancient Egypt to the Roman Empire. We have had no world empire since Rome fell in 334 AD. There's been no world empire. You can call it the British Empire, but the British Empire was not a world empire like these guys were. The British Empire preached the gospel everywhere it went and took English everywhere it went. All right? This whore, this spiritual religion, has controlled every world power from behind the scenes as long as she's been in existence. Satan is currently using the Babylonian system of spiritual idolatry to turn the world away from the truth of God's word and prepare his way. The Antichrist does not want the whore, though. You have to keep that in mind. The Antichrist will use the whore, but does not want the whore. He will only tolerate her long enough to use her to gain the position he wants. And then after three and one half years of political ascent, the Antichrist will use the power of the ten kings to destroy her. She is an ecumenical movement. She is a one world religion thing that makes everybody feel good. She, all the kings of the world have used her to gain political power. We're being used right now by our politicians who cater to our religiosity. You know, Trump just mocked the Bible and said, two Corinthians. And, you know, that's how they say it and wherever he said it. It's like, come on, man, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. I mean, you're funny, but you're not a Christian. Quit, quit using us. All right. 
Again, it's dead silent. Can we just go back to talking about the whore, Pastor? <laughs> After three and a half years, he will destroy her that he alone might control the world. The Antichrist doesn't want to share his power with anybody. He will succeed for only 42 months before being destroyed by the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, he is fierce, but he only rules for three and a half years. You, you can hardly get a BS degree in three and a half years. That's a high school term, three and a half years. This guy rules the world like a high schooler. Three and a half years. The Antichrist, the beast, almost done. There are over 100 passages of Scripture dealing with the Antichrist. Antichrist refers to both the man and a spiritual system. Only 1 John uses the term Antichrist. It's the only place in the whole Bible it's found. But it clearly teaches the spirit of Antichrist is already at work in the earth today and has been since the first century. The Antichrist will be a politician that will rise to power through intrigue and flatteries. He will seem like the schmoozer of all schmoozers, and the world will chase after him. He will be the fiercest dictator the world has ever known, but for a very short period of time. He will be thrown alive into the lake of fire with the false prophet. Again, these are just men possessed by these spirits. His other biblical titles include the little horn, the prince that will come, the king who will do according to his will, the man of sin, the son of perdition. Actually, this sounds like modern Christians. Let me go back and read that again. The little horn, the prince that will come, the Christian who does according to his own will, the Christian of sin, the Christian of perdition. It does sound like modern Christians because they're yielding to the spirit of Antichrist. That's why we teach this so we don't. More will be covered in Lesson 7 called The Two Beasts. And now finally, the, the false prophet, or also called the second beast, because there's two beasts that arise in the last days. They're referred to as beasts because this word beast means a wild animal that cannot be tamed and will destroy you. A venomous beast, a beast with a severe bite. This is like a wild animal. It's not your domesticate, domesticated animal. This is a wild animal that you run from and they keep behind a cage. But the Lord uses this to describe these powers because... You can't trust them. They look beautiful. They're magnificent to observe, but they will absolutely destroy you. Part of the great rebellion of man during the tribulation will be the rise of a new religious system. Not the great whore, Mystery Babylon, but a religious system led by the false prophet. He is a prophet. He, he is a religious leader. He's just a false prophet. The false prophet will be a mere mortal possessed by a demon spirit, as is evidence that a frog-like demon comes out of his mouth in Revelation 16. The false prophet will be the spokesperson for the Antichrist. And what he does is he promotes the worship of the Antichrist. He institutes the mark of the beast for the Antichrist. He executes and martyrs anyone who rejects the mark of the beast or refuses to worship the beast's image. He controls all commerce in that regard. If you don't have the mark of the beast, whatever that may be, nobody knows for sure, so we can only speculate. But if you don't have it, you can't do business. So again, you're a vagabond and an outlaw. You'll either starve to death or have to run away. He will deceive the whole earth through signs and wonders uh, that he can perform. He'll deceive the whole world because this, the, this, the demon, the Satan, gives him power to perform these lying signs and wonders. We already see this spirit at work in the earth today. Every couple years, there's some kind of kooky, charismatic revival that springs up, and dumb Christians are deceived by perverted prophets who can fake a sign and a wonder through a demon spirit, and if you'll check the man's fruit or the woman's fruit, you'll find out they're perverts. And it grieves my heart that in this day and age, because American Christians lack doctrine, they can be duped by something in Florida, or duped by some false revival in Canada, or be duped by some false revival in Nigeria. 
it's, it's quite sad, but that's why we must be students of God's word. Amen. His religious system will be the anti-church. The groundwork for this final religious movement is already at work in the earth today and at work in many churches. He will be thrown alive into the lake of fire with the Antichrist. Again, these are men. The Antichrist and the false prophet are human beings who are possessed by demon power. And the devil promotes them. I say that I am not impressed with politicians, Hollywood, or preachers that are elevated. Because I know demons can do the elevating. And so if a church runs 100,000, that does not impress me. The devil can do that. If a Hollywood star is famous, that doesn't impress me. The devil can do that. He is good at promoting people, but he will exact a, a damning toll on that individual. No, the Bible commands us not to chase numbers, not to chase wow or star power, not to chase signs and wonders or gimmicks, but to look for fruit. We are commissioned to judge people by their fruit. And if you can't produce the fruit of the Spirit, I'm not impressed with the gifts of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit takes a closer walk with God than the, fruit of the, uh, the gifts of the Spirit do. The fruit of the Spirit will take a much closer walk with God than the gifts of the Spirit. We love the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit is what Jesus Christ is looking for. Remember, in John 15, he said, any branch that does not bear the gifts, no. Any, any church that does not bear the gifts, I'll break off and toss it into the fire. Fruit. He's not impressed with gifts. He's impressed with fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's looking for. This concludes a brief overview, and I cannot emphasize how brief this has been, a brief overview of the numerous characters presented in the Revelation. So we're five minutes over, but that's the nature of these studies because there's a lot to cover. Next week, we will cover the four characters of saints, the four classifications of saints we see throughout the whole Bible. And this I've written to show you that we are the church. We're not appointed to the martyrdom of the tribulation or the early church. We are a unique classification of saints and servants of God and that should give confidence in us to run our race and not be looking for a fallout bunker or bottled water or ammunition stockpile but we do this openly with plain speech great boldness of speech without a bag over our head like Moses had to use we push this thing until we're done and Jesus calls us home Amen. Father, bless this church, bless these lessons, bless the pod school, and bless anyone listening to this in the future. May it build a confidence and a courage in us. May the blessing of studying and keeping the revelation as your word promised be upon our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.